Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Plus, coming up later, I chat to Pacific CEO, Jared Roberts, on... Redundancies in print media. Being honest, treating them with respect and thanking them for everything that they've done. Developing Pacific's digital strategy in a post-Yahoo world. We literally had 12 weeks to build what was effectively 16 websites from scratch. And the survival of Pacific's magazines. We sell a copy of New Idea every four seconds still today. But first, the week's topics. The winners and losers in radio ratings. SCA rebrands. Ninja Warrior returns and Origin wraps up. And is the sports broadcasting model broken? Now, before we kick off, I should apologise to the listeners at home. I have been quite sick this week and had some traumatic dental work done, which has combined (laughs) to leave me with basically guzzling an entire tube of Bongella before coming on this podcast. So I'm simultaneously in a lot of pain and can't quite control my mouth. So we'll see how this goes. All professional all the time. (laughs) But on to the radio ratings. So this week on Tuesday, survey four of the GFK radio ratings were released And one of the things that sticks out the most is obviously Sydney's Today FM breakfast show hosted by Grant Denyer, Ed Cavalli and Ash London has slipped to just a 3.1% audience share. Now, that obviously, I mean, 3.1 is a low number, but just anyone can tell you that. Just to give you some context, it kicked off the radio ratings year with a 4.4% audience share and has climbed as high as 4.5%. It's not the lowest that Today FM Breakfast has hit in a post-Kyle and Jackie O world when the M. Rossiano radio show with Harley Breen went out in 2017. It went out on a 2.8% share after debuting on 4%, but they have been hovering in those really low figures for some years. And I think They had experienced a bit of a bump and so there was a bit of positive media chatter that finally perhaps Southern Cross or Stereos Today FM in Sydney had turned the corner and things might be back on the up. That really, that narrative seems to have been undone quite a lot in this radio ratings survey. It coincided with a dip as well for Today FM in general and so often breakfast can dictate the success of a day on a radio station. Hannah, do you listen to Today FM Breakfast at all? Oh, putting me on the spot. <laughs> I do not. Um, to be fair, I don't listen to the radio at full stop, so I'm. it's not a slight against Today <laughs> FM. But I can say back in the day of uh, school drop-offs, my mum was an avid Kyle and Jackie O listener and she did follow them across to Kiss when they went over there. I have a question for you on this, though, actually, because you've been kind of across the landscape for longer than I have. And I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. And the very quick response I got was, oh, Grant Denyer, he's ratings poison, (laughs) which does feel a little mean. But at the moment, he's obviously struggling in the TV world. Do you think that carries over into radio? Look, they're not one and the same in that 
Kyle and Jackie O, who host Kiss FM Breakfast, as you mentioned, the breakfast slot on Kiss FM at the moment has a 10.9% share. They're excellent on radio, Kyle and Jackie O, that at the moment, and I could well be proven wrong in coming months, does not translate to television. Kyle and Jackie O had their disastrous Night with the Stars, and I should be careful in trashing that too much because I know that female journalists in the past who've criticised Kyle and Jackie O's Night with the Stars have then found themselves on the receiving end of a lashing from Kyle, although I'm sure he's not a Mumbrella cast listener. If he is, we'd love to have him join us, though. (laughs) Uh, So TV and radio talent aren't one and the same, so I think you can be poison on one and not poison on the other. I do see what you're saying about poor little Grant, though, uh, gold Logie holding that he may be. He has struggled, but I, I don't know if that comes down to him or the programs he's associated with. You know, it's a bit of a chicken or the egg situation. Family Feud, which was a Channel 10 game show that he hosted for a while, that did do really well for a while in terms of how 10 measures itself. What 10 did then was exploit it and take that way too far and Grant admitted that on his Today FM Breakfast show that it did well. So suddenly it was on too many nights a week. They exploited and extended the format His celebrity name game at the moment, obviously also in the 6pm time slot on 10, also isn't tracking particularly well. But again, I think that's more of a programming bad Mm. on 10's part than a people not watching it because of Grant Denyer. I think that program could be fronted by somebody else and it would still be problematic. I think that's 10 struggling with that 6pm time slot up against the behemoth that is 7 News and in some cities 9 News. I just don't think Celebrity Name Game and that format is landing rather than people wish that they could watch it but wish that somebody else was hosting it. So the question that going forward from here then is what can Today FM do? Because it, to be fair, this does feel, again, like a conversation we've had about 10 in the past where the void has gotten so big, you do wonder, can they catch up? But SCA are doing well in other cities. Uh, Fox FM is on top in Melbourne. So it's obviously not an overall issue for them. They just seem to have a bit of a Sydney problem. They definitely do have a Sydney problem. It's not a hit network problem. It's not a Southern Cross or Stereo problem. I don't I don't know the answer and I think if I did I'd be at a much higher paid job probably in SCA solving solving their problems and also if I had the solution I wouldn't give it away for free here on the umbrella cast while I'm drooling from ODing on Bongella. <laughs> um I think nobody knows. You know, they've they've tried lots of different combinations. They had M. Rusciano and Harley Breen, which whilst not a commercial success in traditional radio terms was something very different in the breakfast radio slot. It got some criticism for being too hectic, too loud, too fast for the morning, but at least it was different. You know, they weren't trying to do what the other networks were doing. Harley then obviously left and they brought in Ed Cavalier and Grant Denyer to join M. In my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinion, that trio didn't work. The dynamic wasn't right. Then M. Rusciano left. They brought in Ash London, who's a phenomenal radio talent. So, again, in this instance, I'm not sure it's even a talent problem because Ash is great radio. Ash is great talent. And I don't think anyone's criticising her ability on radio, but people are not tuning in. You know, 3.1% when Kiss FM is still up in the double digits just is not going to cut it. And 
I'm not sure what they can do from here. I've heard a lot of speculation that, to be clear, SCA and Today FM deny that maybe what they need to do is just be a music station in the morning. That would be completely different. And Today FM in recent years has overhauled its music strategy and differentiated itself and gone for a slightly different demographic. So it would definitely differentiate them. It would save them on the talent costs. And to be honest, how much much lower can you go than 3.1% without becoming the Macquarie Sports Radio of the commercial (laughs) radio world? So look, that's, that's the only speculation I've heard. The other speculation obviously being that there'll be another talent change Mm. soon. And in that space, I mean, their only option from here because Grant Daniel, quite a well-known name in the landscape. Ed Cavalier, also obviously very well-known. Ashland and Massive and Radio, they've got to pull somebody in who hasn't done radio before. Like, you know, is that where we're suddenly going to see the Carl Stefanovac reveal on SCA? <laughs> you know, that's kind of all the option they've got because they have, as you said, tried many things at this point and they've tried some big names. Yeah, well, you, you heard it here first. Carl, <laughs> Carl Stefanovic for Today FM Breakfast. Before we um, wrap up the the radio chat, I do want to chat about Perth because it's a city that we don't give a lot of love to. So, Australian Radio Network's 96FM in recent weeks announced that Paul and Lise, so their breakfast hosts over there, would be finishing up. And that happened right in the middle of the survey break. And it was announced that they wouldn't be coming back. And through the magic of SEO gods, somehow our article about that show, Getting the Axe, attracted some Paul and Lise fans who felt like it was unfair that they didn't get to say, goodbye to their hosts as we talked about in last week's episode. So they bowed out with a 7.1% audience share, which is relatively stagnant for what that show has been on. It does put the show in seventh position overall in the breakfast slot. So there is definitely room for 96FM to move up, although a lot of their fans are still angry and saying that they're going to boycott the station, although to be fair, that's exactly what the fans said back in 2017 when the hosts Carmen and Fitzy were dumped for Paul and Lise. (laughs) So it does feel like we go round and round in circles with these hosts and fans saying they'll never come back to the station and then obviously some of them do. And 96FM have used this as an opportunity to employ some new hosts. So Hannah, who's replacing uh, Paul and Lise on 96FM in Perth? So there's a couple of things to unpack here, actually. First, 96FM have also just nabbed Nova 93.7 program director Dan Underhill. So Nova currently the lead in Perth. And yeah, so there was kind of talk when that came out that maybe they were going to do a rebrand and then the Paul, and that happened just after the Paul and Lee stuff. So they brought Fred Bottica and Lisa Shaw back. Fred is a radio veteran and Lisa has been on air with him for a while. It's Bottica's Bunch for Breakfast. Um, That is a mouthful. It is a mouthful. So they've been on air together since 1997. Um, He did, however, retire a couple of years ago, and she retired last year, but obviously 96FM have got some magic happening to bring them back to the airwaves. So it was kind of interesting because I noticed the comments on this post were a little bit split, where people were being like, oh, the new show's really boring, and, you know, we miss Paul and Lise. And then there were also people being like, yay, it's you know Fred's back best day ever so which again just proves people will talk about anything but yeah it's an interesting choice really I think especially going back to some talent that has actually retired um so I guess maybe we'll see how whether it pays off 
And the other thing that happened that I just wanted to mention as well, in Melbourne, also ARN station KISS 101.1, their breakfast show of Jason PJ, which I think personally is great, uh, is up 1.3 to 6.5%. So that's another one that a bit like Sydney's Today FM Breakfast has been struggling in the ratings against some really well-established teams and stations down there and KISS in Melbourne just doesn't have the strength of KISS in Sydney, perhaps because they don't have Kyle and Jackie O as as the lead-in and as the big faces of the brand. But it's good to see that KISS backing in Jason PJ and, and sticking with that talent despite some previously poor ratings results has started to pay off for them, so up to 6.5%. So we'll keep an eye on how they're tracking as well. Still in the world of radio, up next, Southern Cross Austereo rebrands. So Southern Cross Stereo has unveiled a new logo and brand sound in a bid to revamp itself as an all-encompassing audio brand. Now, again, I think I need to start this segment with a bit of a disclosure. So SCA unveiled their new brand, which given this is an audio medium, it's going to test my skills. It's the letters SCA, unsurprisingly, in blue. So it's quite a basic looking logo. And I sent some thoughts about this logo to somebody and uh, sent it to the wrong person. So I had some pretty strong thoughts on my dislike of this logo, which I meant to share with somebody and accidentally shared with somebody else uh, who happens to work in radio. So it wasn't ideal and I don't know how far those opinions have spread. So I feel like I should just tell everybody really so that we're clear I'm not a fan of the logo, as I'm sure some people have already heard, accidentally or on purpose. Also worth noting, Hannah, you've known me for a long time and I do have a habit of sending (laughs) texts to the wrong people. So look, that's that's my opinion. I don't I don't like it. I think I, along with some commenters in the comment thread, made a joke just that it looked pretty basic and looked like it could have been knocked up, you know, in in word art or, or something like that. But You did speak to SCA boss Grant Blackley about this one and there is more to it than just some blue letters. So (laughs) why don't you put the positive spin on it given that I've thrown shade at us and (laughs) and tell us what the idea is behind this rebrand. There is. Um, I kind of – I think it's interesting how much it's getting trashed as well actually because – trash is probably a harsh word but the comments haven't been particularly kind and I think that's interesting when you take a look back at the old Southern Cross Stereo so for those that aren't aware it's a capital A with a rather retro looking rainbow star next to it it's very 70s 80s and personally compared to that I think the new logo is fantastic but um, coming from a pretty low bar (laughs) (laughs) so I spoke with SCA CEO and MD Grant Blackley about it um, and he said it's kind of more focused on where the brand is going moving forward. So he described it as bold, confident, and fun. Certainly bold. Um, What can be fun about three blue letters? Talk me through that. I mean, I really feel like (laughs) you're putting me on the spot here. I should make it clear I did not design this logo. Um, Honestly, to me, it's just a corporate logo, and I don't really see – this is like every time, you know, somebody changes the colour of their logo slightly or moves the letters slightly and everyone's up in arms about it. 
I guess maybe I'm not a visual person, so I don't really get it. To me, it's just a couple of letters smushed together and it's their new logo. And I think what's kind of more interesting here is that they're, so they've matched it with this brand sound, which they're going to be rolling out across all their corporate communications. They're also going to be using it basically whenever they're not speaking from the point of view of one of their key brands. Um, to me, this suggests maybe we should be expecting to see some more movement from them in the kind of wider audio space outside of radio. Uh, so I think that's interesting. The brand sound has also uh, got a little bit of clap back in the comments just for being a little bit maybe um, generic. We will pop the brand sound in here for you so you can have a listen and make your own thoughts up. But also they're kind of, that's where they're moving as well. They've got a partnership with Veritonic, uh, which is a benchmarking company so they're going to be working in brand sounds i think probably this just speaks to what they're going to be doing moving forward yeah i think the brand sound thing is interesting back at our audio land conference in may there was a lot of chatter about this in terms of how much time money and effort brands pour into getting their visual identity right and we could continue to debate whether sca has their visual identity right until (laughs) until the cows come home but the point that came out of audio land is just how much effort goes into that but then while those same brands are spruiking the future is audio and we're looking at the increasing use of voice devices and voice search and podcasts and that exploding world of audio rather than just video and and still images and yet brands aren't investing in their sound or they don't have a cohesive sound so they'll have images and colors that permeate everything they do visually and everything tangible that they do but then when it comes to audio they'll have too many different sounds out there and inconsistencies and one of the big takeaways of Mumbrella's Audio Land Conference was that brands and audio companies do need to nail their audio branding and and their audio marketing so I guess if SCA are going to position themselves as an authority in this space they needed to sort of practice what they were preaching as well. Yeah and I spoke with um, SCA's Brian Gallagher in a talk which will appear on the Mumbrella cast in the future Um, and he was pretty clear that that's what it's all about. Um, He kind of said you know they really had to position themselves if they wanted to be an authority in the space. Um, Yeah, so I don't think there is – I've just opened the comments up on this and there is the – somebody has come in to say, nice, clean logo. And you know what? Maybe that's that's the view we should all be having. (laughs) Nice, clean logo. What a glowing endorsement (laughs) that is. But up next, State of Origin wraps up and Australian Ninja Warrior returns. Australian Ninja Warrior returned to our screens this week, hot off the back of The Voice wrapping up. Hannah, uh, you are much more across the TV ratings than I am at the moment. Has Nine been able to continue its momentum with these formats? Yeah, it really has, actually. So The Voice wrapped up uh, 1.036 million Metro viewers tuned in for the finale. Um, And then we went straight into Ninja Warrior, which is coming back for its third season in a new city. It's in Melbourne this year. Um, It premiered with 1.01 million Metro, um, which is above its 2018 premiere, which I thought was interesting. In 2018, it came in with 929 929,000 viewers, but it is below the 2017 premiere of 1.68 million, which now sounds ludicrously high. Um, I think that novelty factor of 2017 has worn off mm -hmm. somewhat, though, and 
I think nine will be happy with getting that six, sorry, seven figure <laughs> metro number, just being able to put that one point in all their headlines as in one million and something, I think would have been just such a good barrier to overcome for them after it did dip last year into mm. the 900,000. So if, I don't think it's going to hit the 1.6s again, although nine has promised there is going to be a winner this year. Yeah. So if they can perhaps capitalise on that and get viewers to see the finale and see someone win it, but again, 1.6, I'm not sure that they can do that. No, so and it has already dropped. So we've only had two episodes so far, but the second app um, hit eight hundred seventy nine hundred thousand viewers. So a fairly significant drop there. Um, but what is interesting in this is they are still managing to stay at that very high end of the ratings at the moment. Um, and it's kind of you've got to be wondering for everybody else, does this just mean they're just going to ride that all the way to the end because we've still got the block to go? So. Yeah, I mean, it's some pretty impressive figures, especially considering they must have been worried after 2018. And State of Origin wrapped up this week as well, which is on nine. I guess the difference this year compared to 2018 is in 2018, New South Wales had already won by this point. So they'd won game one, they'd won game two. So game three just was never going to draw the same massive numbers because it wasn't a decider, whereas this year game three was the decider. So I'm assuming that it did a bit a bit better and, and did pretty well for nine on Wednesday night. It did. So it pipped just over two million. Um game one brought in two point one seven eight million, game two one point nine six million. So yeah, game three just over two million. If that's compared to one point seven million for game three last year, which as you said wasn't a decider. Uh game one at the moment holding the title for the biggest T V event of twenty nineteen so far. So it's some, yeah, incredible figures there. Um, It's kind of tying in roughly with where 2018 was, which is pretty good, I would say, considering numbers generally are down this year. So gave Nine a really easy win, also topped all the key advertising demographics, did probably what they were hoping it would do. Which ties in quite nicely to our next topic because, Hannah, in recent weeks, uh, due to our sports marketing summit you spoke with tom malone nine's head of sport and pat maloney uh sevens network director of sports sales about the changing landscape of sports rights and their relationship with you know television broadcasters and whatnot obviously there has been a shake-up in recent years where seven which had the tennis for so long now has the cricket and nine which had the cricket now has the tennis so it is a different landscape and both networks are obviously spruiking that they're happy with their outcomes and talking about why that particular sport is relevant to their own network. That doesn't mean they're completely happy though. It sounds like there are some rumblings from your chats with Tom and Pat from the TV networks about how sports rights are, are tracking at the moment. Yeah, so Tom was pretty handed, really, Tom Malone of Nine. He said uh, the current sports rights model is broken. And what he meant by that is when broadcasters are bidding on uh, these sporting events, they aren't getting the whole package. So they're able to broadcast linear. They're not able to broadcast any. They're not able to do anything on the digital side of things or they only get some games or X, Y, and Z. Um, He said that that's Nine's strategy going forward is to really focus on the sports where they can get everything so that they can offer the best return both for themselves but also for the sport itself. 
He also kind of spoke about how what that means in terms of streaming. So in the US, there's a big push now for codes to start streaming their own content, which he said we probably won't see here because the audiences just aren't quite big enough. But he's also said broadcasters need to really start focusing on the return on investment they can give sporting codes. So he's saying you can't just walk out there and say, oh, we can give you you know, this and we'll pay you this for it. He's like, you need to start positioning yourself as the only way your sport can survive is to be broadcast on free to air. And do you think that the likes of Seven and Nine are having these quite frank discussions about sports rights because they want to negotiate the prices down when, you know, the next sport comes up for bidding? Because I know that there was some chatter that 10 had overpaid for its sporting rights in terms of securing the Melbourne Cup and and the horse racing, it does feel like these two major commercial networks in the form of Seven and Nine, there's been a big shake-up. They've got new sports. They're saying they're really happy with it, but also maybe are they now using this position to sort of rattle the sporting administration bodies a bit and be like, all right, calm down, we're going to start throwing a bit less money at you unless you give us what we want? Yeah, possibly. That's possibly true, especially because attendee numbers are down um, in sports, you know, some of the money's down. So I can see where they've kind of got this great platform to be able to do that. Tom was pretty uh, open as well. He said, um, a quote from him here, it's very hard to persuade someone that the model is broken until it breaks. So you might see one or two sports fall over in the next 12 to 24 months as the rights models come up for renewal. That's pretty much a threat really there that he's throwing out into the open. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this does mean less money's going to start changing hands, but then what does that mean for someone like 10 who's apparently willing to bid a lot of money for the sports that they want? Up next, I sit down with the CEO of Pacific Magazines, Jared Roberts. Joining us on the Mumbrella cast this week is CEO of Seven West Media's Pacific Magazines, Jared Roberts. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, look, you've been at PacMags for a very long time. I believe you started in 2008 as editor-in-chief of Famous Magazine. Correct. And when you sort of climbed up the ranks to eventually become CEO in September 2016, uh, you said Seven West Media, which is your parent company, You said it was Australia's largest and best-performing integrated media group. Do you still believe that's the case for Seven West Media? Yeah, I think it is. You know, I think if you have a look across each of the businesses, obviously the uh, television network um, from a ratings perspective still uh, number one. Uh, WAN, obviously in their market, I think they reach more than 90% of that market now. And obviously since the acquisition of the, the news brands over there, um, they obviously dominate in that market. And I think from a performance perspective, um, I might be a little bit biased in this, but I, I do think that Pacific is the, the best performing publisher. Um, you know, I think we have 26% of all readership with only 12 measured titles. So we absolutely punch above our weight in that respect. Uh, from a digital perspective, we are absolutely up there and competing with the biggest women's digital networks in the country and we're doing so within a within a short space of time, you know, considering that really we regained the digital assets from Yahoo just over two years ago. Um, so absolutely, I, I think that we would still say that. And I think that we would also say that there's still a lot of growth and potential to come. 
Now, you mentioned the separation from Yahoo, which happened for you guys at Pacific some time ago, but the divorce, for want of a better word, or the separation between Yahoo and Seven finalized completely more recently. So talk us through your digital strategy post Yahoo and the benefits that it's had sort of owning your own magazine brands online. Yeah, look, that was an incredibly interesting time. And I think that, you know, uh, from a Pacific perspective, that happened just as I was coming into the role. Um, You know, we made the decision with Yahoo a couple of months before I actually officially uh, took the reins at Pacific. And it was really interesting, you know, for a number of reasons. I think that, you know, um, Tim Warner's used this term before, but up until that period for Pacific and for Seven West Media, you know, we'd effectively outsourced the internet. You know, so um, when we got the digital rights back, um, we literally didn't have a lot of digital skills or experience uh, in the business. Um, So there was a couple of things going on, you know, at once. I mean, we literally had 12 weeks to build what was effectively 16 websites from scratch. And we didn't have that any of that capability in-house. So, you know, we literally had to bring about 90 people into the business or around 80 to 90 people into the business, you know, everything from front and back end devs all the way through, you know, customer experience. And so we we ported a digital business into Pacific, you know, in a really short space of time. Um, so we had the operational challenge of literally building the websites, uh, getting them live and to market, um, generating and scaling an audience really quickly. But I think the thing that I found really interesting and that we probably underestimated um, were the cultural elements uh, of bringing that many new people into a business. You know, it's one thing to be able to say from a process perspective, here's how this will work and here's what we need to do to get them live. And then it's another thing altogether to talk about how it is that you integrate, again, new people with new skill sets into an existing business and make that work in a really cohesive manner so i think you know again operational piece cultural piece the biggest learning that we took away was really making sure that you get the cultural bit right and one thing that's frequently said about more traditional magazine publishers is that they didn't nail their digital strategy the first time around and you might not want to comment directly on a competitor i always try to get people to do that on the podcast and they seem to be hesitant but bauer media for example has also been through various digital strategies and now they've got their Now to Love network, which it's fair to say not everybody does love that as a strategy. So why do you think you as an industry were a bit behind? How come the eight ball was dropped there when you had print so nailed, but then you fell so far behind on digital? Yeah, look, I guess, uh, you know, I can only talk from a Pacific perspective and say that, you know, we probably had a bit of a second mover advantage. So we'd probably seen some of the mistakes that had been made previously. And if there were mistakes made and, you know, everyone's business is their own and they make the decisions that they think are right at the time, I do think that, you know, if there were mistakes made, it was probably, you know, through trying to balance, you know, an existing business, which was probably still the most profitable part of the business even if it was going through some challenges with an emerging business you know and they're you know they're difficult things to do and they require hard decisions you know if you've got one part of your organization which is still generating the majority of the revenue and the profit um, but you need to scale back on that in order to fund a new part of the business you know again when and where do you focus um, you know 
how is it that you sort of exploit one part in order to explore another? You know, they're difficult decisions that are all really easy in hindsight. So it's really hard to pass judgment on anyone who may have made mistakes. Um, and I think that there's probably plenty of mistakes to come. You know, we we really feel like we've got it right. But from our perspective, it's not really a digital business. It's an audience business, you know. Um, and again, I'd, it was one of the interesting things, you know, going back to it, at the time I came into the job, you know, again, we'd just gotten those rights back. Um, you know, I, I had a a strong um, preference for digital and leaning towards digital in my background and people said to me straight away, you know, so is Pacific going to become digital first or will you continue to be print first? And our response was always, well, we'll be audience first. And really our job is to understand audience consumption, audience trends, understand where those audiences are moving um, and really try and match that um, with with the pace of our organisation and our pace of change. And I think that that continues to be the case today. It's not about being platform focused or platform first it's actually just about understanding where and how audiences shift um in terms of how we got it right um to be brutally honest i think it comes from getting the right people into the right roles and we did a great job of that again i think we probably have the benefit of not having a lot of those skills within the business which meant that we had to bring a lot of new people in and i think we brought the right people in at the time um, and we've continued to focus on talent today. You know, I would be the first person to say that our, our business is so broad and diverse these days that I just can't know everything about every element, nor can anyone. So it's actually just about bringing the right group of people together and getting them to operate collaboratively and, and you know, as cliched as it sounds, you know, to a really unified and kind of common vision. And I think that's where we're at today. So speaking of talent and people helping you with various areas of expertise, Keshni Kemp was recently promoted to head of video and Lucy Chesterson joined as digital content director. So how will those roles help you continue to drive further digital growth? Yeah, well, look, I mean, we're you know far from the Lone Ranger in seeing you know, great growth in, in video um, consumption from a consumer perspective, but... Um, you know, we've had a very clear video strategy for the last 12 months, sort of built on on three key pillars, uh, originally created video content, partner-supplied uh, video content, and user-generated video content. Um, Kesh is going to lead our originally created uh, video content piece, um, which is inclusive of editorial video, first and foremost, um, editorial sponsorable video um, for partners, and then native video. Um, she's got a fantastic background in video. Um, she's worked in both commercial and editorial roles in that respect. Um, and so I think that she can do two things. She can create fantastic editorial video for our audiences, um, first and foremost, and she can do so in a way which provides fantastic opportunities um, for partners. And and that is really key for us as we move forward. You know, there's, again, within that space, I think you'll see uh, coming out of Pacific, a really complete programming slate heading into the new financial year where we've got video franchises across every brand and in every category, um, which we believe are not only, again, fantastic for our audiences, but going to be great for um, for our commercial partners. 
Lucy stepped into the role uh, that Brett Waddelton was in before. Brett went over to head strategy for 7news.com.au, so stayed within the group, which was fantastic. Um, and Lucy's someone who I've worked with in the past who just has uh, an unbelievable amount of, quite frankly, exhausting energy <laughs> that sort of never stops, which is, you know, fantastic for a 24-hour news cycle. You know, we've got um, incredible growth in our audiences uh, across the past couple of years, you know, um, if we use NDP, which we use at the moment while we're waiting for our DCR roll-up, um, we've had 42% growth year on year in our digital audiences. You know, we'd like to believe that we can continue that. So Lucy's got some pretty stretchy targets, but she proved herself at Yahoo where she was running last, Lifestyle and uh, I think she'll do so with us as well. It hasn't all been hiring great talent for the past few years for you guys, though, there have also been a lot of restructures and redundancies, which absolutely wasn't unique to you guys, but doing a search before you came in for the podcast on our site on mumbrella.com.au of news stories about Pacific magazines, a lot of them are about restructuring and teams coming together and subbing roles being reduced and all that kind of thing. When you were doing that along with other publishers such as Bauer and Fairfax and News Corp., a lot of what you said to justify it at the time was to future-proof the business in the digital age and you often in your statement said that it absolutely wasn't a reflection of the people that you were having to let go. Do you think you've sort of stabilised now? Have you begun to future-proof the PacMags business? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Again, um, you, know, you never make any of those decisions easily. You never take any of them lightly and you know, a lot of those changes uh, came in the traditional areas of the business and in in the the content areas of the business, which I actually came from. You know, I started as a journalist myself. I understand the enormity of the work they do, how hard they work. Um, so none of those decisions are taken easily. But, you know, I think that the world outside our four walls had absolutely changed. There's been a seismic shift in media um, and probably, you know, a lot of media businesses didn't change at the same uh, rate. And so we had some catching up to do. Again, part of it was a result of the fact that, you know, all of a sudden we did have to build a digital business and we needed to make changes in order to do so. Uh, but we've had a period of stability um, since we made the last round of changes. And the structures that we've got now um, you know, we believe with our strategic focus moving forward, we've got a, a determined focus on on six areas of the business that we believe will take us into the future and a part of our five-year plan and the structures and the strategies um, that we've got in, at the moment will really support that. You know, the obvious thing is we can't sort of say we're audience-focused and we'll change as quickly as audiences do and then promise that nothing will ever change again because, you know, that that simply wouldn't be true. Um, again, if we need to change, we will. But I think that the majority of the mass restructuring is is definitely something that we've thankfully been through. And again, you know, we've really grown and built the business off the back of the teams that are there right now. And on a day where you've got to let multiple people know that you're restructuring and they won't have jobs, whether it's immediately or whether it's in a few weeks' time, how do you walk into a day like that personally how do you stop it from taking a huge toll on you as well as the people that you've got to let know well, I don't know that you can 
you know, I, I've I've never said goodbye to someone in our business and and not spent the night thinking about it. You know, you'd be inhuman if you didn't. It's it's the reality of what it is that we do. But you know, you've got to put it into context. And you know, even still, it's far harder for the people who leave than what it is for me. So, you know, you've you've got to think of them first and foremost. And and I think you know, treat them with respect and and dignity. And that's something that we've always tried to do with everyone in the business, um, you know, regardless of, of whether, you know, we've had to say goodbye to them or whether or not they're still there. It certainly doesn't make it any easier. Um, but being honest, um, again, treating them with respect and thanking them for everything that they've done. They are really difficult business decisions, but, you know, we've we've still got a lot of people there and, and we have to think about those people too and, and, again, creating a sustainable business for the future. But, you know, um, how do you minimise the pain or the impact? I, I don't think you can on everyone. You can just be as honest and transparent as you possibly can be. And speaking of pain, I sometimes think that perhaps magazines have a bit of a, a PR problem in terms of the headlines that they generate. And I know that you want to position yourself and think of yourself as an audience business. But when we have to write through various figures such as SMI, which is the standard media index, which looks at agency bookings in various mediums, it is often framed as magazines are down, magazine bookings are down, and advertisers aren't putting their money with print. So how do you navigate that and overcome that PR when there are so many headline figures about magazines and print in general being in such trouble? Yeah, look, you look at SMI and they are the figures. You know, there is absolutely no escaping that. Um, You know, do we think that that's the right thing to be happening? Absolutely not. Um, You know, I think it's been said and said really well by others before that, you know, the rate of decline in print advertising well outpaces any audience declines according to readership or, or any of the metrics. So from an, from an industry perspective, you know, I think you're right. You know, potentially we do have uh, a PR challenge and that's something that we do need to address because, you know, I think that the effectiveness of magazines uh, has been, I think, underdone. And we need to do a better job of communicating what that could be. Um, And also communicating how magazines can work in conjunction with other media as well. Uh, And I think that that's the thing for us. If if we think about it in two ways, um, you know, we're happy with the performance of our magazine business. You know, we always want it to be better. But, you know, by the same token, it is still a significant business, you know, like, we forget, and this stat always stuns me, but, you know, we sell a copy of New Idea every four seconds still today. Wow. You know, that is, you know, to us that's, you know, an incredible um, stat and something that we need to keep getting out there. It doesn't mean that there aren't challenges, absolutely, but internally um, we've really focused um, at the retail level uh, around what we can do to support print. You know, that's our front line. That's where our product meets our consumer, so making sure – um, you know, that we're working really closely with retail partners uh, is really important. Um, but I, on the other side of that as well, you know, um, magazines are still an incredibly important part of who we are, but they're not all of who we are. You know, it's, you know, someone compared it the other day to, you know, you know, calling Apple, Apple iPhone. Well, you know, the iPhone is one part of what they are, but it's not every part of who they are. 
you know, and in that respect as Pacific, we've probably got a branding challenge given that we're still called Pacific Magazines. Yeah. Um, but, again, it's, we don't define ourselves solely by the magazines. They're no less important than what they were before, um, but they're one important part of what it is that we do today. So the past few questions of this chat have obviously all focused on this seismic shift in media and how that's resulted in restructures, in redundancies and p- potentially in magazines branding problem generally. So all of that sort of feeds back to digital giants such as Facebook and lots of publishers, both big and small, have taken a stand on Facebook and come out against it or blamed it, for want of a better word, for their current troubles. How do you feel about the social media giants and the impact they're having on your business? Yeah, look, I mean, like many businesses, you know, particularly in the early days, you know, we built audiences through social um, and uh, predominant, you know, predominantly our early audiences, particularly when we had to scale quickly. Again, you know, we built our sites and, you know, there certainly wasn't a, wasn't an attitude of, oh, you know, no worries, we'll we'll build an audience over the next 12 months. It, you know, we literally wanted it to happen overnight. So, you know, social was an audience driver for us. We built an audience through social, you know, but I think that in that event, you, when we saw algorithm changes, when we saw the Facebook model start to shift, you know, that hurt us and it hurt a lot of publishers. So I think, you know, the lesson out of that that, that we still carry today is, is not to be over-leveraged um, in any partner. You know, we've got a really clear audience development strategy that's built on five pillars of which social uh, is still one. Um, but in that respect, you know, and in those early days, social was probably the only one. So I guess, you know, our attitude is, you know, don't be over-dependent on any particular audience source. Um, you know, similarly from a publishing perspective, um, don't be over-invested. Again, you know, if we were to be true to that mantra that we talked about before and following audiences, you know, as audiences shift across the social networks, we've got to follow them too. So I think that our, our relationship with them is absolutely work in partnership um, but also be really aware of, of how to diversify your interests so you're not beholden. Our audience at Mumbrella has certainly shifted in terms of the sources that they're coming from. We definitely get less Facebook traffic now and less engagement from Facebook and we're finding a lot more of our audience comes from platforms like LinkedIn, for example, particularly when we do people moves or things like that. So now that you've seen that shift away from Facebook, talk us through some other sort of digital initiatives that you have going. I have a list of things here from you guys, and it seems like you've been doing all sorts of partnerships, everything from WeChat integrations to partnerships with TEG Analytics. So what else have you got going on? Yeah, look, I mean, we think about our business, you know, probably in in four segments, um, people, product, process, and partners. You know, the partnership perspective for us has been really critical. Uh, again, you know, the business is, is really diverse. Uh, and in order to best serve our audiences, you know, we can either take the time or, or invest in a way which allows us to be able to, to build products or we can partner with really clever companies where there's a mutual interest um, commercially and also where we can deliver um, a great product and some value to our consumers. So, you know, if we think about the, the playable video partnership, um, you know, EDM is, a, is one of the pillars in our audience development strategy. 
and a really effective one for us in terms of engaging loyal audiences. You know, we we know that their dwell time with us uh, is a lot longer through EDM, so that's a really key piece for us. Um, and being able to embed video, which is obviously, you know, from our perspective, uh, a really growing part of the business and a highly engaging um, audience tool. Being able to embed video in EDM is is a really exciting offering, not only for our audiences but for our commercial partners uh, as well. I think that the uh, the Tega piece, the Ticketech Analytics piece, is is probably about three things for us. Again, when we looked at, you know, we've got a really clear, um, you know, push and and priority around first party data, um, but we also need you know clever partnerships in. Uh, in data, and I think that we looked at uh, Tega as you know the country's biggest lifestyle data set, and with us as one of the country's biggest lifestyle publishers, it felt like a great mix. Um, when we had a look at their audiences and our audiences, you know there was a a match of more than eighty percent um, from our CRM data within their audiences, and more than sixty percent from a cookies perspective. So there was a really nice audience match. So that partnership made perfect sense for us. And I guess the benefit of that partnership, you know, really falls in in three buckets. Um, one is just from a straight audience targeting perspective. Um, so again, to be able to better identify and, and target audiences from an activation perspective, you know, which, you know, a lot of people do really well, but, you know, for us, this gives us a, a deeper ability to be able to segment, understand um, identify and target those audiences. Um, the second piece for us is is really around content engagement, uh, and that's something that's important from an internal and an external perspective. So, on the one hand, you know we'll be able to go to clients and commercial partners and say, uh, within this identified audience group, this is the best type of content to put in front of them, and how we can lead them through content types in order to get to the type of conversion that you want. And we'll be able to do that with certainty, be it by category or, or author type or whatever the case may be. And secondly, for us, that's just as important in terms of being able to give our creatives and content teams um, you know, really clear data and guidance on the content that they can and should create in order to either build the audiences uh, and grow the audiences that they've already got or target new audiences, you know, that they may not know about um, and might want to cultivate. And I think the third piece for us is, um, as I think Nicole Bence, our commercial director, has spoken about, um, providing a new revenue stream that might exist outside of advertising. Um, you know, again, what this really gives us the ability to do is, is understand our audiences better um, across the entire network and in that event, be able to pass that audience understanding onto clients um, in a way which might help them get greater insight into the audiences they're trying to reach. And that may not include media at all. You know, so for us, um, you know, we're looking to move beyond what have been our two traditional revenue streams of circulation and advertising. Um, obviously, advertising extending well beyond print these days and and through digital and into uh, non-media revenue streams, um, you know, which provide us with you know a, a more sustainable model for moving forward. And I promise this is the final negative I will throw at you. <laughs> but look, there have been a lot of high-profile defamation cases over the past twelve months or so. Whether it's Rebel Wilson versus your rival Bauer or. 
Jeffrey Rush versus News Corp and the Daily Telegraph. It's certainly generating headlines and a lot of your titles do deal with celebrities and speculation. Does the current state of affairs with Australia's defamation laws concern you at all? How much does that play into your planning for the content of your mags, given what an appetite people seem to have for suing at the moment? Well, I think it's, you know, it's it's not only about magazines, it's actually across the board. You know, you have a think about, um, you know, the, the Vola case, um, you know, with publishers being liable for uh, comments posted on Facebook. So, uh, you know, I think generally um, understanding where we sit from a defamation perspective, regardless of platform, has to be a concern for all media outlets, us including, uh, us included. You know, one, you know, in terms of, of understanding, I guess, you know, what the standards are, what's expected, how that's changing, and how it is that that we, um, you know, understand and operate accordingly as a business. You know, I think that, as you said, it, you know, regardless um, of, you know, print, digital, we see things changing really quickly and that's got to be front of mind for, for absolutely everybody. And so one final question, which I promise will be positive, what is your favourite magazine? Within our stable or, or outside Look, of our why stable? Why don't you or? pick one from you and then one from outside, just to be fair? Oh, which is your favourite child? This is difficult. <laughs> I get in trouble no matter what I say. Um, uh, I love all my children. No, it's a, um, you know, I, the brand at the moment that I'm really excited about is Marie Claire. You know, we talked about, you know, uh, and we talk about Marie Claire being a power brand with purpose um, and it genuinely is. You know, it, it's really interesting that, you know, as we talked about, you know, for decades um, Marie Claire has fought for women and that's, you know, that's a, a much more mainstream push now, which is just amazing. But, you know, we're really proud that Marie Claire has been doing that for a very long time and continues to do it now. You know, I, uh, we had the the Glass Ceiling Awards, you know, which I was lucky enough to go along to. Um, and to see, you know, the individuals, the organisations, you know, everybody um, together and celebrating, you know, those that are, that are, you know, fighting to smash that glass ceiling, the trailblazing companies and and women uh, who are fighting for equality. I, I just think, you know, that that all of our brands need to have a purpose because that's what people will engage with um, and will respond to. And Marie Claire is one, um, you know, which has exhibited purpose for a very long time. It's, a, it's part of their DNA. And so the opportunity is there, you know, well outside of, you know, how much money we make, how big the audience is, them doing meaningful things just because they matter, I, I think is fantastic and something we should be really proud of. And then I look at a brand like New Idea, which, as I said before, you know, um, uh, Australia's uh, oldest continuously published magazine brand that has evolved the way it has today under Louisa Hatfield and Emma Nolan is just an absolute triumph, you know, huge digitally, um, still doing great things in print, like I said before, selling one every four seconds. You know, you can't not be proud of a brand like that. 
Um, and now you've got to choose your favourite stepchild, and that is a magazine <laughs> outside of your own network. You know what? I, maybe in my own, you know, content consumption, I'm a luddite, but I still love magazines. You know, I, I love the promise of a magazine. I still buy the Saturday paper. I love the Saturday paper. You know, I probably don't read it every weekend, but you know, it, it sits on the table, and it's a promise of an hour or two to myself where I just get to to lose myself in it. So. You know, I have always loved and still love Vanity Fair. I think that, you know, again, their uh, their long pieces, you know, are just again something that you can immerse yourself in and and lose yourself in. Um, so that's still that's a magazine I still love. I love Monocle, um, but by the same token, you know, I'm still a bit of a sports nut and I love a bit of Sports Illustrated. Again, long form journalism, just amazing. So, you know, it's. It sounds naff to say, and I'm not even just talking about, you know, uh, magazines, but print in general, I'm still a high user of. And I think, you know, for us, that's an important perspective. You know, media so much today is about time and place. You know, you use the media that it's that's appropriate for for where you are and when you're there. You know, if you're waiting for the bus, you'll be on the, on the phone, you know, quickly flicking through, trying to catch up on headlines or you know, if you've got an hour to yourself, there's still nothing better than the tactile experience of flicking through pages. And and I think that that's the way most consumers think as well. They use what's right for them at the time. Um, you know, I, I've still not run into anyone who's just gone, oh, I just don't like print. It's not how it happens. In the same way as they say, I just don't like digital. You know, I think that sometimes we go to work and stop being consumers and start being business people. And it's important to remember, you know, how they feel first and foremost. Well, he clearly does love all of his children. Jared Roberts, CEO of Pacific Magazines, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And just before we go, on Thursday the 25th of July in Sydney is the Mumbrella Finance Marketing Summit. And one of the sessions that I'm really looking forward to is the Chief Marketing Officer of Auto and General, which is the parent company behind Budget Direct, and Nick Cleaver, the CEO of 303 Mullen Low, which is its creative agency, are going to do a presentation on Budget Direct's advertising evolution. And this is a brand that has been behind campaigns such as that Bouge Bouge song that gets stuck in your head, the Captain Risky stuff, and more recently, the Sarge and Insurance Solved campaign, which unfolds a lot more like a movie Hollywood-style adventure than a traditional insurance campaign. So those two gentlemen will be talking the Umbrella Finance Marketing Summit audience through that and just delving into their strategic thinking behind the campaigns and sharing some of their learnings from the work that spans the last 10 years. And then I'll be chatting to both Jonathan and Nick about that. So if you'd like to come along, jump on to mumbrella.com.au slash finance. For now, though, thank you very much for joining me, Hannah. Thanks, Deb. And we'll speak to you next week. Thank you.